Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it to Romans chapter 8. We're in our third week of working our way through what many have called, and I would agree with, the greatest chapter ever written, the greatest chapter in the Bible. And we find ourselves this morning at verse 9, and we're going to stare at and look at verses 9, 10, and 11. If you don't have a Bible, as always, we'd love for you to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you. You can keep that as your own. Let that be our gift to you, and if you're not used to looking up books in the Bible, you can find Romans chapter 8 in that Bible that's in front of you on either page 944 or 740. We, we live in an anxious and insecure age. I think this has been true of humanity since the fall, since the Garden of Eden, I think it's particularly true of us now. The threat of war, of terrorism, it's not just some distant reality, but we hear reports of maybe this horrible terrorist group, even at the border of Texas and Mexico. Even just in Oklahoma this past week, we saw some horrific crime that seemed to have as its motivation terror and this false religion of Islam. And we, like other generations, I'm not saying certainly other generations, the World War II generation, fearing the Third Reich and Hitler certainly had to deal with this anxiety that seems to be present. But it seems to maybe be more acute in our age because of the 24-hour news cycle. So there's this external anxiety and insecurity that we feel, and I think it's compounded by this internal anxiety and anxiousness that we now have more opportunity to delve into because of social media. We now have platforms by which we can compare ourselves either negatively or positively in sort of boastful arrogance with the rest of the world as we click on pictures and news feeds and secretly prop ourselves up or loathe our low standing in comparison to our friends around us. We live in an anxious age. We are insecure people. And underneath all of this anxiety and insecurity is this this question that has been eating at us, I think, from the beginning, from Genesis chapter 3, from the fall, is whether or not we will make it, whether or not we are okay, whether or not we are accepted. And I think that's the great purpose of Romans chapter 8, assurance for God's people, assurance as Derek Thomas, the pastor and professor and author who wrote the book that our community groups have been going through on Romans chapter 8, how the gospel will bring us all the way home. I think that's the great question 
in many of our hearts, and that's the great answer of Romans chapter 8. So with that, let me read Romans 8, verses 9, 10, and 11 as we continue our journey through it. And let's pray. Then we'll pray, and then we'll stare at these three verses for the balance of our time in the Word this morning. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 8, verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, we come now to this portion of Romans 8, speaking to us about what it means to live in the Spirit, what the consequences are for those of us who are in Christ. I pray that you'd help us to stare at these words, to consider them, to apply them to our lives, and then to live our lives in the coming days in light of the consequences of the truth that is in these few sentences. Show us wonderful things in your word. Encourage us. Convict us. For those of us in this room who are not yet trusting in Christ, who are still walking in the flesh, who are not yet trusting in Jesus, would you do the greatest miracle of all? Would you make that heart which was dead when it walked into this room, would you, by your grace, make it alive and fill that person with your Holy Spirit and then lead them by your Spirit so that they can follow you? Lord, would you do these things for the glory of your name and for the joy of your people, for the salvation of the lost? In Jesus' name, amen. So here's my plan as we work through these three verses. I want us to just take each verse at a time, and I want us to stare at it and look at it and and just peel back layers of beauty and truth, and then we're going to end with just three brief reflections on what this should mean to us. So the first verse, verse 9, let's put it up there and let's stare at verse 9. Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. So he's building on his argument that we looked at last week in Romans 5 through 8, that there are really only two types of people in the world. Remember, and I, I think I probably shouldn't have started with that illustration of a certain type of ethnic food that I did last week, Because I heard through the grapevine and through text messages and Facebook posts that nobody paid attention to anything I said last week. They were just waiting to get out of here at lunch and go to a Mexican food restaurant. So I'm sorry. I won't do that to you again. 
But the point that Paul was making in Romans 5, Romans 8, 5 through 8, is that there are only two types of people, those that are in the spirit and those that are in the flesh. And that's not uh, classifications for people who are more mature in Christ and those who are more, you know, not as mature in Christ. That is, Paul is separating all of humanity there. And those are Paul's phrases for those who are in the spirit, Christians, who've been made alive by the power of God, by the Holy Spirit, who've been brought back from death to life through the Spirit that now lives in them, and those that are in the flesh, that are still dead, whose minds are carnal, who are, whose minds are set on continued disobedience to God. And so Paul now is making a transition in verse 9 to speaking about and to those that are in the Spirit. So he's saying, you, Christian, however, are not in the flesh, even though you still deal with abiding sin, and we'll talk about that in a a second. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. A couple things I want you to notice here. First is that notice that he uses the phrase, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ interchangeably. They're just in the same verse there. He's, he's speaking interchangeably about the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ. Throughout these three verses, we're going to see the beautiful work of the Trinity, but that's telling us right there that Jesus is God. He is God the Son, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In this verse, we see even the community of the Trinity. The other thing that I want us to see clearly is that to be a Christian is to have the Spirit of God or the Spirit of Christ, or the Holy Spirit, all of those phrases are interchangeable. To be a Christian is to have the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. It means to have God's Spirit living in you. By having the Spirit of God, Paul is not talking about a certain level or a higher life or level of Christian living. He's not talking about a certain level of maturity. He's not talking about the attainment of a particular spiritual gift. He is saying that a person, if they are a Christian, and since they are a Christian, the Spirit of God, the presence of God, the Godhead, dwells in them. They now become the dwelling place, the temple of God. So to have God's Spirit is to be a Christian. Conversely, to not have God's Spirit dwelling in you is to not be a Christian. To not be a Christian. Another thing I want you to see is that this indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which means we are a Christian, then means that we are bodies as ordinary and as frail as they feel now are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Listen to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 writing another letter to another church. He says this in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 19 through 20. Or do you not know that your body right now, believer, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, and that price was the incalculable worth of Christ Jesus, God the Son, and His life bearing the weight of God's wrath on the cross, laying down His life as a ransom to purchase your salvation. For you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. This verse is telling us that the glory of God does not reside in temples and beautiful buildings, as much as we can appreciate that, but God's very presence dwells within our frail, humble bodies. Think about the implications of that, friend. In fact, in the Old Testament, when you're seeing the temples being built and God giving very clear instructions about the beauty of the temple, friends, all of that is meant to be a temporary picture of the reality that we now know that God will indwell us as his people, that we are the temple and our frail bodies will be resurrected and I'm getting ahead of myself, we'll get to that in a second, but we'll be this glorious temple. So we are, as Christians, the dwelling place of God by His Spirit. We need to realize also that this isn't just for us as individuals. This indwelling of God, where God takes up residence in our bodies and our lives and makes us his dwelling place, his temple, isn't meant for us to just be sort of individual people sort of scattered abroad doing our own thing, but it it has not just an individual but a corporate dimension to it, a body aspect, a, a, a unified building that God is building as his people. So in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says this about this reality of the fact that we, not just as individuals, but collectively, corporately, together as the church are the body of Christ being built as a temple for him. So Ephesians 2, let me read verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's this collective corporate dimension to our life together that God didn't just save us and give us life in his spirit so that we could be individual Christians who kind of poke our head in and get a little bit of goodness for us and then sort of go on living our lives individually, but we're to be we're to be fitted together to collectively together grow as a display of God's beauty and glory to an onlooking world. And I think this has two dimensions. In one sense, it has a, a universal dimension as the body of Christ. We are, as believers in Jesus, as followers of Christ, as his church, connected to all people everywhere, in every tribe and tongue and nation that is trusting in Jesus. Churches all across this world who are gathering even today to worship Jesus. Do you realize that, friend? Do you realize that, American? That you are connected. In fact, you are more connected to a believing Christian Arab than you are to your blood relative who's not trusting in Christ. 
the spiritual reality of your identity in Christ means that you are more connected to a believing person on the other side of the world than you are even to your own blood relative. So it has a, a, a universal dimension, but it has a, a local dimension to it as well, that we live out the realities of what it means to be a family together in the local church. So Paul is writing that letter to the Ephesians who were a group of people who humbled themselves and submitted themselves to one another. So this glorious truth of God residing in us is meant to be lived out within the context of the local church and a group of people who are living life together and then seeing themselves as part of this great grand universal body of Christ, the church. Another thing I want us to see in this, and it's so clear, he states it directly, that I think has great implications for us, especially in a culture that waters down the gospel and promotes the, the heresy of easy believism that says, well, just you know, accept Jesus and then you can kind of go on doing whatever you want. Don't, it doesn't preach the whole counsel of God's word. This truth is especially important for us to see, and it is this, at the end there of verse 9, it says that anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. Conversely, if, if you do have the Spirit of Christ, you belong not to yourself, but to God. We read that just a second ago in 1 Corinthians 6. It says that you were bought with a price, that you belong to Him. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2, verse 20. He says, I have been crucified with Christ. My old person, the old man, the man that was in the flesh, is no longer alive. He's dead. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So if you're a Christian, you belong to God. You're His. Your future is His. Your intelligence is His. Your gifts are His. Your money is His. Your body is His. Listen to me, young person. Your body is His. The mechanisms by which he gave you to experience pleasure are his. There is no compartmentalization to your existence. This very faulty teaching that still rears its head in the church is that there's this like possibility that we can accept Christ as our Savior and not our Lord is absolutely wrong. To be in Christ is to be possessed, to be owned by your Creator and Savior. Now granted, friends, we have varying levels of maturity, and we'll talk about that in a second. But friends, to be a Christian is to be owned, to be possessed, to be commanded, to be under the complete authority of God. And friends, don't buy the secondary lie that comes along with that, that that is somehow less than good for you or a less than joyful thing. See, here's the lie. The lie is, 
Boy, life is to be enjoyed, right? And I grew up in kind of this fundamentalist, Bible-beating sort of environment where people were always yelling at me. And this guy kind of yells at me too, so I'm kind of wondering what's going on here. And so there's this sort of subconscious sentiment that to be Christ or to be completely under the authority of Christ is to somehow sort of miss out on pleasure. Friends, nothing could be further from the truth. At his right hand, Psalm 16, are pleasures forevermore. Friends, he, he, the pleasure that is in the joy that is in being possessed and owned by God far outweighs any broken, counterfeit, earthly pleasure that we still deceive ourselves and think that we're missing out on. Well, friends, we could spend time, we could spend time unpacking that, but let me just settle down there for a second. And just say, friends, in reality, in, in regards to our flesh, in regards to things like sexual pleasure, uh, friends, what God has for you and for us in confining our pleasure in that area to the marriage relationship between a husband and wife and finding no other outlet or expression in any other way is not strict or less than our ultimate pleasure. It is actually where true pleasure resides in that area. And every other expression of that will lie to you and tell you that, oh, I could, this will be okay. And it ultimately, it's like a shiny apple that as soon as you bite into it, you, you bite into worms and mush. If you are Jesus's, if you're a Christian, you belong to him, and that is not mutually exclusive with your joy. It is actually where true joy is found. Well, let's steer now at verse 10. He says, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life, because of righteousness. Okay, so let's, let's unpack this. Let's, let's stare at this. So, okay, building on verse 9. To be a Christian is to have the Spirit of God dwelling in us. To be the temple of the Holy Spirit connected with all other Christians across the world, across time. And then most principally, in community with the local body of believers, the church, the Bible-believing community the gospel-trusting community that you're in, and is to be possessed by God, to be owned by Him, to belong to Jesus, so Christ is in you, even though this reality that we are still facing is this body that is dead because of sin. So what he's saying here is that salvation is not just the immediate fast-forwarding of the final state where we're finally and fully glorified before God and start eternity. We still have to endure living in this, this body, this tent that is dead because of sin. So to be a Christian, to have Jesus dwelling in us, does not mean that we do not have to still endure the consequences of sin. Of course, we still do. We all know that. We still will have to fight sin 
And we still will have to deal with the consequences of our flesh that is marching towards decay and death. Our bodies, and all of us who are over the age of 40, will say amen to this. Our bodies are wasting away. Right? I used to think that snap, crackle, pop was the sound that the cereal made. And now I realize it's the sound that I make when I get up in the morning. And I used to laugh at my dad when he would, for the first few minutes in the morning, just kind of shuffle around, you know. It's like his hamstrings were so tight in the morning that he just couldn't even take. That's, that is me, right? Our bodies are wasting away because of the consequences of sin. So I think this, this should give us pause to think about these bodies that we still have. I think it teaches us something about these bodies. I think it teaches us that we should not neglect our bodies because we're still in them and we have them for a purpose and God is still using them to house our spirits, our life, His his presence in us. And so that gives him great, great dignity and great honor. And we should, we should not neglect our bodies. We should, seek to, uh, we should seek to treat them well and steward our health as, as good as we possibly can because they are still the, the place that God resides. But on the other end, we should, we should not idolize our bodies either. And I think we, we kind of fall into either ditch. You know, we either say, ah, forget it, who cares? You know, I'm just going to do whatever. I'm going to heaven anyway. I'm going to get a new body. We'll read about that in a second. So who cares? I'm just going to eat, you know, a pound of bacon for breakfast and barbecue for lunch and dinner and, you know, just do whatever. That's wrong. We need to be good stewards of our body because these bodies, although they're wasting away, are marching towards an ultimate redemption. But I think that another ditch that we fall off in is the idolization of, of our bodies and physical fitness. Friends, I think, hear me well on this, and all of you fitness freaks, I, first of all, I want you to exhale right now. Breathe, okay? Breathe. Okay? I think that one of the great idols of our age is the idol of physical fitness. And I think that something that Christians oftentimes are very prone to is this lusting after a body image, right? Paul writes to Timothy, and he says, physical exercise is profitable, but it's only temporary. What's really profitable is cultivating your spirit, your heart, your mind, your life with God. So, friends, should you exercise? Yes, but should it dominate everything that you do? How do you know maybe if that's happening? Do you spend a whole bunch more time planning your diet and your exercise than you do your internal life with God? Do you spend way more time at the gym than you do with God and His people? Be careful about lusting after physical fitness. Be careful about putting yourself in environments 
where everybody else is doing that. Be careful about that, dear friend. Yes, honor your body, exercise, eat right. But don't let it consume you. I think we're, we're very prone to that in our culture. I really do. And maybe some of you are. And you would be well served to realize that that body that can do more push-ups than it ever could, that you're taking selfies of, posting it for all of us to see, thank you for that. is decaying. I mean, come on, friends. Just think of the folly of that, you know? I mean, first of all, there's always somebody out there that looks better than you. Come on, just, just deal with it, right? Second of all, even at the peak of your physical fitness, give it another decade, sister. You're going downhill. Right? Friends, let's honor our bodies. Let's not idolize our bodies. And let's not lust after each other's bodies. Because they are dead. They're dying. But yet, Paul says that the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. So there's these two trajectories going on in the heart and mind and life and reality of every Christian. In one sense, our bodies are decaying and aging. And in another sense, our spirits are becoming more and more like Christ. They are alive because of righteousness. Not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, who was perfect, who is perfect, who lived the perfect life where we have rebelled, where we disobeyed God, Jesus, God in the flesh, in the likeness of sinful flesh. Remember what we read a couple weeks ago? In the likeness of sinful flesh, took on humanity and for sin, for our rebellion, for our weakness, for our disobedience, became our punishment. He became our substitute and he bore the judgment and wrath of God for us, all those that would trust in him. And then he took our sin and he gave us his righteousness. That's the beautiful phrase, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For in him, uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So on the cross, Jesus gets and takes our sin extinguishes it, moves it away, absorbs and satisfies God's judgment for it, and then gives us his righteousness. And that's what the Holy Spirit brings when he makes us alive. When he dwells in us, he brings the righteousness of Christ, Christ's work, Christ's perfection. So when God sees you, dear Christian, he doesn't see your works, which could not stand before him, but he sees Jesus and his righteousness and his life. So there's this trajectory going on in the life of every Christian. The righteousness of Christ has been given to us by the Holy Spirit at our salvation, at our justification, at our resuscitation, and this body that is continuing to decay. Now verse 11, what I think he's been building up to, this glorious truth. 
Okay, so let's re- rehash. If you're a Christian, you have the Spirit. You're God's temple. You still have this temple, this old body of sin that's dying, even though Jesus is alive in you. Now, verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Okay, so here's a turn, a twist. This body that was dead because of sin that we read about in verse 10 that's marching towards decay, Paul says here in verse 11, will ultimately and finally be given life through the Holy Spirit that dwells in you, just as that Spirit gave life to Jesus when He resurrected Him from the grave. Friends, verse 11 is one of those sentences in the Bible, one of those promises in the Bible that is a worldview. It frames all of reality. Paul is saying here that the Spirit who dwells in you, just as the Spirit that brought Jesus back from the dead and gave him this resurrected, glorified body, will also raise you, friends. So we are on this trajectory where our bodies are marching towards death, but there is a final realization and fulfillment to the finality and the completion of God's work in our life that we will finally and fully be made right, not just internally, spiritually, but physically and in every dimension. Listen to what Paul says. We read it earlier. We'll read it again. It's worthy to look at again. Philippians 3, verse 20 and 21. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So Paul is saying there that when we die, we don't just become sort of disembodied spirits to float around on a cloud with a robe on and a harp. We await the final return of Jesus when he will resurrect our, even our earthly bodies and will transform them into glory and we will be like Jesus in his resurrected glorious body. He writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. So we do not lose heart because of this final promise, this final hope. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. 
For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So even the things that we're experiencing here in this life, these 80 or 90 years, even the weaknesses and the, and the brokenness of our body, even the things that are happening to us from the outside, outside are really just serving to detach our hands from this world to prepare us for the next where we will be finally and fully transformed inside and out. Friends, if you, if you stare at that long enough, that will begin to draw your soul like a holy heavenly magnet towards eternity. So let's look at the consequences. What are you dealing with right now externally that is troubling you? Friends, it is a momentary and light affliction in comparison to what awaits you, the, the holy heavenly magnet that is drawing you into Christ-likeness in every way. And Paul is giving us this picture of the guarantee of the Spirit's work in the life of a Christian so that we can put everything else underneath that and not be sidetracked and be drawn to the future that awaits us. So what is outside that is troubling you? It's nothing compared to the unstoppable process that has begun in your life of your full and complete salvation. What's troubling you inside? I joked about uh, pops and snaps and crackles and sore backs. Oh, but dear friend, there are, there are people in, in this congregation that are enduring far weightier things inside their body. Disease. Cancer. Just this past week, Scott and Gina Carroll, you remember Scott and Gina lovely family that was part of Cross Point for the last several years. They just got stationed at Fort Bliss, Texas. And Gina's father, who was a believer, had been battling Alzheimer's for the past few years and just this past week succumbed and passed away. Ah, oh, such a terrible disease. I look across this congregation even now just looking at people that are dealing with cancer. Very difficult diseases. Do you realize what Paul is saying here about your body and the fight that you're undergoing right now? He's saying, oh, dear friend, there is this process that has started in you that no matter what happens, no matter what happens in this life, there is this process where the Spirit of God that is working righteousness in you, that has begun this process of transformation in your spirit, will also do it in your body. To There will be a point coming in the future where even your mortal body will be raised and will be like Jesus. And there will come a day when cancer and sickness and Alzheimer's and whatever thing that you're facing will not have the final word, but it will be swallowed up in the glory of the beauty and finality of the resurrection. Oh, friends, let that be like a, a holy magnet that draws us forward and say to the world around us, what then can this world or disease or man or circumstance do to me? I know that the gospel will bring me all the way home. That's what Paul is saying here. And he's saying that this Holy Spirit that is in you, that has made you alive, is like a down payment. It's a guarantee. It's earnest money that God is putting on the table, saying, that's my house. 
I'm in the process of remodeling it, and there's coming a day when I'm going to perfect it. And if God is your builder and architect, oh, friends, you need not worry about any of the details. How's he going to do it? I don't know, but he's able. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So God came up and took residence in your life, made you alive, gave you a heart so that you could believe in Jesus, gave you ears to hear and trust in the gospel, gave you eyes to see and savor Jesus, and he never takes them away, and he doesn't let you lose them, friends. If you are his, if you've been made a Christian by God's sovereign grace, you are his. And then he says of this work of the Holy Spirit in saving and applying salvation, he is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. God is good for his deposit, right? Some of some real estate people in here, maybe some bankers in here, Right? And you maybe have made some loans or you've brokered some deals and you're wondering whether you're actually going to get to closing. Right? Friends, when the Spirit takes up residence in our hearts, we will get to closing. We're like in that 30-day wait period, right? The deal is not going to go bad. God will finish what He has started. Let me read 1 Corinthians 15. And then we'll land this plane, a few verses in 1 Corinthians 15, which you would do well to read this whole chapter. In this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is saying that this is what awaits us in our final and full resurrected, glorified state. Our spirits have been made alive by the Spirit of God that has given us a heart to believe, has given us the gift of faith and repentance has taken up residence in us so that we can now finally see Jesus. Dead eyes can't see. Dead ears can't hear. Dead hearts can't believe. But now we've been made alive, so now we can see, hear, and trust in what God has done in Christ on the cross. And now then, this spirit that is alive and this body that's wasting away that will go into the ground will be raised, will be given life. Our mortal bodies will be given life through the Spirit who dwells in us. There is this full and final process, this salvation that will be completed in and on that day. And this is what Paul says of that day. Verse 50 of 1 Corinthians 15, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But I tell you, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, not all sleep, meaning die, but we shall all be changed. In other words, most of us are going to die before Jesus comes back. Some of us may not. Pray that the Lord would come back today. That would be wonderful. But most of us will likely die before that day. But he's saying all of us who are in Christ, whether we are alive when Jesus comes back or whether we have already fallen asleep or in the ground, will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. In other words, that body that's in the ground will now be raised and glorified and perfected and it was perishable and now it will be perfected and imperishable and we shall all be changed for this perishable body, this one that is 
that is dead, that's marching towards decay, must put on the imperishable, meaning like Jesus, perfected, glorified, resurrected, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come the To pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So three reflections, and I end on this, and they're very brief. Three reflections, three responses, three consequences of this truth. Number one, we should marvel at the work of the Trinity and worship God. Friends, do you see what's happening here? God is planning our salvation. The, the Son is accomplished, has accomplished it in His work on the cross, and the Spirit is applying it and, and being the guarantee that the process that we are undergoing, the process of our salvation, will be completed. And do you realize that your, your salvation is a process, that, that we're undergoing transformation? We, we have been saved We are being saved and we will finally and fully be saved and resurrected and complete and consummated and our spirits will will, will have this glorified resurrected bodies and there will be nothing to trouble us ever again. Marvel at the work of the Trinity in our salvation. Secondly, we should be emboldened in our fight against sin. If God has begun a good work in us, He will carry it on to completion. Friends, don't take this security and this assurance and this certainty of God's work in your life as a license to say, oh, well, okay, if that's the case, then I'll just kind of do whatever I want. Friends, if that's the way you interpret this truth, I think that that's probably an indication that you may not understand the gospel and that you may not be a Christian. I think that's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 6. He says that if you're alive in the Spirit, you're dead to sin. So reckon yourself dead to that old way of life and now use this great reality to fight sin in your life. So friends, be emboldened in your fight against sin that God has begun a good work in us and He will carry it to completion. There's nothing that we can do that would... That would cause that process to be stopped or lost. And so therefore, let's swim towards God's grace and glory. I told you the story one time of my dad when I was a little kid. We'd go to the beach in California. And the Pacific Ocean has terrible riptides. And my dad was out there in Carpinteria, California, in between San Diego and Los Angeles. And he was a very strong man, very good swimmer. I was a little kid playing, you know, I don't know, putting sand down my brother's shorts or something on the beach. I don't know what I was doing. And my dad was kind of waving at us, and he was swimming back, and he was like swimming to to shore, but he was moving out. He was caught in a riptide that was pulling him out to sea. And it was one of these great memories of my childhood, like this helicopter flew over with a rope and a tire tied around it and picked my dad up and brought him back to the shore. He was being pulled underneath the current out to sea by the riptide. Now, that's a, that's a negative connotation, but in a positive sense, 
That's how God's grace is in our life, friends. It's pulling us deeper and deeper underneath the surface. We can't always see, but it's pulling us deeper and deeper into God and his beauty and his joy. And oftentimes we're swimming against the current in all futility. Friends, this truth should make us turn and swim with God in his ways so that we can fight sin effectively. And then thirdly and finally, understanding this reality that our salvation will be full and final and complete, our spirit and our bodies, our mortal lives will, our mortal bodies will be glorified and perfected and made alive in Jesus should make us free to give our lives away. (laughs) Think of it in just financial terms. I had 50 bucks in my pocket right now, and I knew that what awaited me was innumerable wealth. Would I be stingy with the 50 I got right now? I don't know. Tell me how you're going to use it if I give it to you. I mean, can I get a statement, please, of how you're going to use my investment? Think about it. We're like, we're like little hoarders. We're like little, little hoarders that are, that, are, that are hoarding over tiny little decaying pieces of fruit that are dead. When what awaits us is... is an endless banquet table, right? So if we, if we see this truth, right? If we see this truth, it unclenches our fists from this life and this body and my temporary future and these 40 or 50 years and it frees me because I know what awaits me. It frees me to give away this life because I know the life that is promised. I know what awaits me, so what does it matter? What does it matter if I give my life away to a foreign land and I never come back? What does it matter if I spend my life in giving myself away to the witness of the gospel in the city that God has given me and I lose out on some temporary pleasure that ultimately cannot satisfy? What does it, what does it matter, friends? What does it matter? What does it matter when awaits us is eternal, unceasing, full, resurrected joy? Oh, friends, I need this because I, I cling on to things that are decaying. Like I, I want to put a death vice grip on things that ultimately will perish when what awaits me is eternal, unceasing joy. Friends, this has application in every area of life. I want to hoard my children. I want to hoard this church. I want to hoard, I want people to stay so that we can be awesome, right? Because I want all the talented people. But that's not the gospel. That's not life in the spirit. Give it away. Give it away. Give it away because you will not be losing out on anything. Give it away. Give it away because what awaits you is eternal, unceasing, glorified joy. And maybe the thing that you need to do today, dear friend, is give your heart and future, your life away to Jesus, who owns you, who owns you for your good and his glory and your joy. Let's pray.
Father, I remember the words of J.I. Packer, who said that you send your people both, both joy and sorrow to detach our hands from the things of this world so that you might attach those hands to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would burn in my heart and mind and in the hearts and minds of my friends gathered here this morning a picture of what awaits those of us who are in Christ. And let that free us to spend ourselves, to spend ourselves for the glory of your name. Lord, that may mean that there is a young person or an old person, a retired person, a single person, a married couple in this room who's being called to consider investing their lives in a foreign land for the sake of the gospel. You've given them skills and abilities and talents not to hoard, but to spend. And maybe today you're calling them to give their lives away in a foreign land for your glory and their joy. Lord, call them today. Etch it deep in their soul and put them on a trajectory of preparation so that they can go. All of us are on that journey in one sense or another, even if it doesn't mean a faraway land, Father, we're all called to give our lives away. So Lord, for all of us in this room, would you zero in by your Holy Spirit on the things that we hoard and the decaying lives that we covet? And would you lift our eyes to see this great hope of what awaits us? And would it cause us to unclench our fists from these 80 years and grab hold of future joy and would you pull us with your irresistible unstoppable love towards Christ Lord I pray that you do this today now in us because of Jesus Amen Amen